1: Welcome into this edition of Inside Carolina's Next Level. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. That's the other host, Greg Barnes. And of course, on Next Level, we're sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt and JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Also strive on this show to do a little bit deeper than the normal sports talk. We, we have a ton of that content at Inside Carolina, and many thanks to all the fans and everybody that enjoys that. But on this show, have you, as you've seen from past episodes, we like to talk to folks that can bring us up a level, to the next level, so to speak. And, and so Greg and I have a special guest here today, and I know a lot of young fans out there might not recognize the man, but I will say it again. As I said off air, looks virtually the same as he did back in 1986 to 1990. Former North Carolina power forward center, Scott Williams. How you doing, Scott? Tommy, Greg, thank you guys for having me on the show. I'm doing fantastic.
0: I'm uh, looking forward to uh, getting into it with you guys. I've, I've been big fans of uh, Inside Carolina, and now we're taking it to the next level, so I'm excited to be on your show.
1: Great. I love love the advertisement there. That, w- that was perfect. Uh, <laughs> and shout-out to Jeff Denny for hooking us up. I talked to Jeff, um, I guess, at the ACC championship game, maybe in Charlotte, and he talked about a lot of the former guys wanted to – to be a part and be a role. And uh, uh, let's get right into it. You've written a book through the fire and the old heads that are North Carolina fans certainly understand your journey or have heard about your journey, but tell us a little bit about how and why you came about writing a book. Um, and I've read it and you have it there on display. I'm trying,
0: I'm trying to get it in frame here. I'm, <laughs> That's it. A lot yeah, of rings shameless, shameless plug. I plugged your show. Now. I got a- <laughs> no, I gotta plug the book here. That's the cover.
1: <laughs> that is that is why we are here. Just sort of walk us through the process you had of of writing this book and why you came to this idea to put this out.
0: Well, you know, it's uh, it was during the pandemic when we were at the height of it, right? If you guys can, you know, flash back to uh, March of twenty. 20- 20 and everything was kind of shut down, right? Business and sports, there's no, you know, thing, nothing going on in the world of sports. And I've been a sports fan and a hoop's head my uh, my entire life. And I was just, I'd moved back to Austin to be a little closer to my children because uh, I didn't know what the heck was going on. My son was in his senior year, my daughter's in her junior year. And I, I just wanted to be a little closer to them and just took a quick apartment and literally in two days furnished it and everything shut down so i didn't have cable tv at the time nothing so uh and you couldn't get anybody to come out to a service right so everything was shut down and i was jonesing for sports and all i could do was watch things on you know netflix and on on my uh my phone uh and my laptop so uh a lot of things i started watching were these documentaries and then michael jordan came out a couple weeks later with a month month and a half later with the last dance so I started doing some Zooms with some of my former teammates, and I looked forward to my Sunday evenings, watching a couple episodes uh, every Sunday. I planned my meals around, you know, what I was going to have. I would get some Italian, maybe per, uh, pair that with a nice bottle of wine. And that was my way of uh, and being able to enjoy the rest of the, the, the weekend. And it got me thinking when I was reminiscing with some of my teammates, Bill, uh, Bill Cartwright, Will Produce, Stacey King, B. A. G. Armstrong, we do some of these shows for, you know, NBA Legends TV and so forth. And I thought, I got a lot of stories to share. I'd like to share some of my NBA stories. And I start, and that took it a step further. I said, someone said, well, why don't you do an autobiography? you know, I'm not a writer. <laughs> I don't, I don't know first thing about book. you know, books and publishing. I've been growing some, you know, great writers and Tolkien and Brown and Grisham and, uh, you know, some of, some of the others. Um, but it was sort of a, a challenge for me. So I, I went back and, and started going and looking at, you know, my life in California growing up, my first love being baseball. And, um, you know, moving on, and as baseball got a little slower, and the fast-paced action of basketball, and thought, you know what? Can't just tell that story without telling about what type of child that I had, and what my mother uh, did and sacrificed for me and my brother uh, in a very abusive, um, with both verbal and physical abuse, to uh, herself, myself, and and my brother, and. Um, how that impacted my life and, and being at North Carolina uh, with Coach Smith. So what's really saved my saved my life because I had some real dark days after that. But, you know, when you have a, you know, 19-year-old just finishes freshman year, you're thinking life is great on campus, uh, and then you get a knock on your door from Coach Smith and, you know, at 730 in the morning you go, why is Coach Smith landed on my doorstep? And I thought, well, I must have missed a class, didn't turn in a project. I'm going to be running back and forth from you know Smith Center to Findlay Golf Course for the next you know, month and a half. I, I was in some deep trouble and messed up on campus. And then, you know, he tells me, as my mother had split from my father after my freshman year, uh, that my dad had taken a gun and, and shot her and turned the gun on himself and, and just took all the wind out of myself sails after riding high, going 14-0 in the ACC tournament, and then went hitting a huge shot, uh, you know, and the, the, against Virginia to send the game to double overtime. Um, that was devastating. Uh, and if I hadn't been with Coach Smith, who uh, guided me through a very difficult time, I, I wouldn't have made it. I had a lot of dark days. Um, uh yeah, that uh coach sitting with Coach Smith, that whole Carolina family, my teammates, uh helped help me through.
2: Scott, uh you mentioned Dean Smith and it's hard to believe uh he passed away eight years ago. Yeah. But I remember when he passed away and they had all the the ceremonies and memorials uh in Chapel Hill. And uh Everybody knows about what he accomplished on the court. You know not just success with wins and losses, but you know pointing to the passer, for corners, mixing up defenses, all those you know, variety of things. Uh, but really, during that process where everybody was kind of mourning his death, it was really enlightening for me uh, just to hear all f- these former players and all these former or people in the community that that knew Dean, about kind of the special impact that he had, you know, off the court, and you kind of reading, reading through your book and seeing the impact that Dean had on you, and it almost seems like, you, know, you hate to say anything's kind of meant to be in, in this frame of reference, but for you to be in Chapel Hill, you know, uh, on the other side of the country from home, and to have somebody like Dean Smith there to support you and. And to help guide you through such an incredibly tough time, uh, it just seemed like he was really kind of the the right man for the job. Is that is that fair to say?
0: Yes, uh, you know when Coach Smith passed, uh, it was devastating to all of us that uh, you know wore that Carolina blue and white, and uh, we all kind of considered ourselves, you know, Dean's kids. Um, he was a father figure to each and every one of us. And we tried to use it as a celebration of his life and his legacy of what he meant to us. We've all been going on to strong and um, relationships, um, successful careers, whether it be in basketball or playing in front office, coaching, and general managers, uh, doctors, lawyers, dentists, business folks, financial. It, It didn't matter. He prepared us for life after that game. Dude, did, Dude, I can't call Coach Smith a dude. Coach Smith, um, he cared more about us as, as men uh, than he did ever about wins and losses, and it was evident to each and every one of us. I remember his home visit. Uh, he came in, and I write about it in my book, his visit. He only he only promised me two things. He said, uh, Scott, when you leave, you'll have a, a, a great education, and you'll leave a better person. No other, no other coach had said that. You know, I had everybody write about Jimmy V's visit in my book and him getting into a screaming match with his assistant. <laughs> his assistant. I mean, dudes were nose to nose. I Jimmy V is fiery. But I, I said, Coach, I, I haven't had too much of that, man. I don't, I don't know if I could deal with that every day in practice. So, uh, and I love Jimmy V, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, Coach, Coach Smith was different. And he was crafty because, you know, he wasn't meek. He wasn't soft-spoken. He he, he is successful. And, uh, you could tell that um, uh, he cared about his his uh, players, but he was smart because he invited my mother to uh, accompany me on my official visit to North Carolina. And no no other uh, coach had done that either. And my mom jumped at that opportunity to go check out Chapel Hill. And I'll tell you, we arrived on a Friday and by sad by the Sunday, rather, she was nudging me tell Coach Smith you're coming to school here. Tell Coach Smith you're coming to see you. And I had I grown up a big UCLA Bruins fan, so I still hadn't take my trip to UCLA, but they had kind of messed up the recruit, so I knew I kind of wasn't going there. But I, I wanted to, uh, you know, at least get that visit since it was something I've dreamt about for a long time. But uh, she and I both knew that uh, Chapel Hill was the place for me uh, with with Coach Smith. And like I said, the the guidance he gave me with, along with Linnea, um, you know, helping me through that dark period was – he wouldn't let me give up on my dreams. I wanted to sit the season out, um, you know, I, I had a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of nights in the dorm room when I was drinking, uh, you know, deep into the night and didn't have any energy for practice the next day and had to find the, the strength inside is he didn't take it easy on me. <laughs> put you that way. It's oh, you can sit on the sideline. It's like on the line, you know, we want a gut, gut check right now. You, you put a hundred, we used to put a hundred points on the board and have to run it down to zero. Uh, before we could get out of practice. So between him and then Coach Williams getting his hands on the bigs, he was the big man coach uh, for 45 minutes before practice, wearing our tails out. Uh, me, Jr., Pete Chilcutt, Marty Hensley, uh, he used to kill us. So it took everything I had to, to concentrate, lock in on what Coach Smith was teaching that day, uh, remembering those uh, offensive emphasis and the defensive emphasis and the thought for the day. Some of those still stick with me today, you know, like – so um, – that being around my teammates concentrating on practice was my, was my therapy. I didn't, I saw a, uh, a psychologist for two visits, uh, that coach, uh, Smith's wife had set up, Laney had set up for me, Dr. Smith. And, uh, I got more out of being on that floor, uh, being on that hardwood, working hard, busting a sweat, competing and banging with Jr. and, uh, and Pete and Marty, uh, that, that, was it lifted my spirits and got me out of that, that dark time had allowed me to get to the classroom and concentrate and get my work done. And, um, it was a blessing for sure. So I think my mother knew that, uh, coach Smith would be a man to, to guide me, uh, through college and, and the rest of my life. Uh, so we had, a, we had a special bond and no special, more special than that he had with every other player, but, uh, it, it was certainly uh, what I needed at that time.
2: Scott, I want to stay here for a minute. And you mentioned you kind of detailed a little bit there, but you mentioned, you know, uh just the devastation of that that meeting when when Coach Smith came in and, and asked JD to, to leave the room and he shared the news with you. Uh and kind of reading through the, the rest of your book and just seeing how your your life has progressed and all the success that you've had. It's almost like that was kind of an inflection point because um it could have been very easy for you just to say, yeah, you know what? this is too much. I'm done. Um, what can you share kind of what was going through your mind in terms of not wanting to stay in Chapel Hill, wanting to take a year off. And then the conversation with, with coach Smith of saying, no, I really think you need to stay. And yeah. you kind of the impact thereafter.
0: Yeah, Greg, it, it was, it was, it was tough. I was devastated. I did mean, coach brilliant as he was we sat on my in my messy dorm room on on the edge of my bed and he just held me as I cried uh and I'll tell you there's a it's amazing what trauma does to your to your mind your brain uh it punches holes in some of your memories I had to search long and hard to remember some of those those the few days after that uh I remember jumping on a plane and coach Williams rushed over and and got Lillian lee who was um, Howard Lee's wife, who was around the program because of Angela Lee, was a secretary in the basketball office, and they were family. And uh, she, he rushed her to the airport to meet me as Coach Guthridge drove me down. Uh, and I had just a short period of time to, you know, pack a duffel bag and uh, and jump on a plane to get back to California. My brother was uh, three years older than me. Albert uh, w- was there, and of course, um, my mom's sisters. We're in the Southern California area, and we had two separate funerals. It was it was weird and bizarre and surreal, and you know, I, it was hard to process. I had some dreams sometimes that no, it didn't really happen, and um, you know, for vi- variety of different reasons, you know, I would see her again some way, some point, in time in my life. It it, it really messes with your head. So I'm glad that Coach Smith did not let me go back to California. Uh, I was there for a week and then back in Chapel Hill in practice. This happened the first day of practice. And that was the best thing for me to get right back into a routine, although the routine was difficult. Uh, it gave me structure. It gave me discipline. Uh, and that that really helped me because I, you know, it, for for my brother, it wasn't so easy. He needed to move into Chapel Hill. But um, uh, the devastating effect of verbal abuse. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write this project is to – uh, give back to some domestic violence centers that that help uh, young, young men, young uh, men, boy, boys and girls uh, and women, of course, uh, to try to help raise some funds to uh, help help out uh, in the situation. Maybe somebody going through what I'm going through because it's silent. Right. So none of my friends, even even people that have read the book go, dude, I've known you since Mesa Robles Elementary and had no idea. Uh, what was going on in your home life? Because from the outside it looked good. You know, Cadillac in the driveway, Volvo, muddy green Volvo, swimming pool in the backyard, fire pit, you know, three-car garage, living in a, a middle-class suburb. It, it looked like, you know, a nice, a nice situation for, you know, played Little League baseball, my dad was an autistic coach, mom was on a PTA. Uh all that from the exterior looked good. And nobody knew that. Nightmare of uh, what was going on in the house uh, because it's it's shameful to have to tell your friends or coach or teacher about that. So you you keep it quiet, you keep it hidden. Um, you know that that was that was difficult to uh, to hear people t- you know tell me that you know that it triggered them or they they uh, they fell for me or or you know that, that that's that's hard and it's all, it's not an easy read and it was a hard write. Um, but I, I wanted the story to get out there. I wanted to be real. I wanted to be raw. I talk about <laughs> wetting the bed all the way into high school uh, as, a, as sleep, going to sleep every night and in, in fear. Um, and I want kids to go out there and say, hey, if he could still make it through the other side, even with the, the traumatic ending uh, to his parents, that they could do it too.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I pre in my former life, and I mentioned it to you off the air. My former life, I worked in that realm, at least on the, the law enforcement and the prosecution side of it. And to see you share um, and be so open in sharing it, I, I think it is extremely helpful um, for folks to read it. I think it's extremely helpful for folks to, to hear about it and to see your story. Um, and like I said, and And I don't want to get it to be too much of a PSA about it, but it is important that folks read this book and hear your story. And that's one of the main reasons we're here. But we're also here um, because who Scott Williams was away from that and the person you became. One thing I want to
0: share real quickly before we move on away from that was one of the thoughts for the day that Coach Smith always put on the practice plan was it's never too late to do the right thing. And here it, is, you know, this happened to me in uh, 1987. It's 20, 2023 now. And although I've shared this story in some speeches from time to time, that you know, people have asked me through some of the work in my domestic violence centers and Cleveland here in Phoenix, um, I think this is the first time on a larger platform that I'm sharing. It. And I thought, well, you know, it happened so long; these kids don't even know who I am, right? So. But like Coach Smith said, you know, it's never too late to do the right thing. And I think this is the right thing to do. And I'm hoping in a way that, you know, my mother's looking down on me and can be proud of uh, what I'm trying to
1: accomplish here. Yeah, that's awesome and 100% right. And, and, And that's where I was going a little bit is that we're going to talk about all your accomplishments on the basketball court at Carolina for the Bulls, NBA and all that. But I think folks need to really focus on the 15, 20 minutes of this opening here on how it shaped you and all, so I appreciate it. Uh, and Scott and uh, Coach Smith had a way of always, you know, he says it's never too late to do the right thing. Well, he always seemed to do the right thing. And you're another long example, um, long line of examples of that. Let, let's talk about basketball a little bit, and I want to I want to kind of pick your brain here because I was a freshman in Carolina at '89. Was there until '93. So I remember seeing you guys around and kind of larger in life and all that. But the game was different. The game was so different watching, or at least it felt like. It feels like it was. And you mentioned the 89 championship game. JR and Ferry going at it. You mm. in there. That was, and I don't like to use the term, but that was a war. If people haven't <laughs> listened or watched that game, um, you guys were beating hell out of each other. And it's fascinating to watch the game now compared to them. But just what are your memories about on the court back then? I asked Jay Billis the other day, is it true that Brad Doherty told you he was going to beat you like a dog on the foul line? And Jay said, 100% accurate. And I didn't know what I had gotten myself into. Just talk about playing back then. Oh, that Carolina.
0: Carolina-Duke rivalry, man, let me tell you, it was it was real, uh, it was personal, I didn't know a damn thing about Carolina-Duke, uh, growing up in the uh, suburbs of Los Angeles, um, and when you get on campus, you run real quick, <laughs> this is serious business. This, this ain't just like, you know, Los Altos versus Wilson, you know, my crosstown rivals in high school. You know, this, this is a whole nother level. Uh, and we done kicked their at, excuse me, we kicked their booties uh, in 87. We had Kenny Smith and Joe Wolf and Jr was a, I mean, a beast as a freshman. Uh, and we own those, those, uh, those guys. So 88 comes rolling around. We think it's going to be more of the same. Well, it must have ticked them off because in 88 they they beat us not once not twice but three times for the acc tournament title so uh, in 89 that was that was too much for us to live with i mean it was it was shameful walking around camp campus after getting your butt kicked by any team but it, you multiply that by a factor of 10 if it had been the uh the dukies so we were determined not to let that happen when we end up splitting the regular season with them we realized eighty the eighty nine tournament when we met in the finals. This zip this this is everything is on the line. They hated us as much as we hated them. In fact, here's a funny little sidebar. I went to the uh, Sixers game Saturday when they were in town here to play the Phoenix Suns, and All Allah uh, Abdanabi is doing the color for the Sixers. Uh, and we went over, uh, we were doing a project together that hasn't come out yet. I'll, I i can not tell too much about that, but he actually said some nice things about me on this project. So I had to go over and give him a nice little bro hug and it took everything I, it took everything I could, you know, not to just kind of just give him a little shot down, you know, out of the solar plex just for old time's sakes. Cause we went to the war, Allah and Leitner and Ferry and I, we were banging down there. And I remember... I was hacking everybody. Give me five fouls. I, I think I, I think I ended my career at Carolina as the all-time ACC fouls leader. <laughs> <laughs> so you gave me five fouls. I was using four and a half every game uh, to set that record. Um, but anyway, uh, there was one point in time in the game. I, I don't know. I had three fouls, four fouls, three fouls. I got three fouls, and and uh, Leitner was going to the hole, and he had got the better of me, so I had to put him down. And uh, they whistled me for the foul. We didn't call any flagrant fouls back in the day. So he went down kind of hard, you know, and and, uh, as I was coming off, we were down at there in the floor and coach Smith, our coach K started yelling at me (laughs) and it's so loud. And I couldn't hear, I can't remember exactly what he was saying, but I know it wasn't nice. uh, You know, the the expression on his face was I had, you know, I'd fouled his boy Uh, and uh, coach Smith. He yells back. He got my back. He starts yelling at Coach K, don't you talk to my players. And would you believe Coach K looked down at him and said, F you, Dean. <laughs> I said, oh my God. So it wasn't just the players. It was the coaches that the emotions were riding high too. So, But, you know, it was a sign of Coach Smith, like whether we on the court or the classroom, he's always going to have our backs.
1: Yeah, that's uh it, it was fascinating to watch back then. Um and you guys were as tough as it gets. How much do you remember? Obviously you remember the Duke game, but you dealt with injuries at Carolina. You dealt with you know injuries all the way. How much do do former guys remember specific moments like that? Like you talked about, coach.
0: Um, I, I remember you know I remember a lot of my Carolina moments. But Jay, Jeff Denny, my my like, you know that was what the greatest thing that uh, Coach Smith probably did for me. He assigned me uh, Jeff Denny. We talked about the opening show for putting this together. help help put this together. Uh, he assigned me to roommate with with JD and. Um, JD doesn't forget anything. He does like an elephant. So there's every now and again, there's a player from another squad, you know, or, you know, where where do we play that game? And, you know, and he's got it. He's got that recall instantaneously. And uh, so he he helps me with a lot of that stuff. But for the most part, yeah, remembering my senior game. playing well and then having my shoulder dislocate on me during the first half and then having to come back in the second half. Um you know I would I did not want to lose my final game in the Smith Center. Uh I think I went for 26, uh which was a good was a good big scoring night for me because I was normally around that you know 15 to 20 range. So getting up over 20 was always was always good. And I had to set out a good portion of that game. But you know we're battling against Dennis Scott and Kenny Anderson uh you know two great players they had bobby crimmin's over there coaching their sideline and they were they were running pretty hot at the time they kicked our butts earlier in the year because uh i think they beat us by 20 maybe 30 points down there at their place so uh we wanted some revenge and we wanted to uh win our last game so we walked off victorious i remember hugging marty Hinsley and jd and uh you know the seniors John Green uh leaving that Smith Center floor for the last time I even took a bow I was so excited like that'll be the last run I ever get in the Smith Center and I wanted to make sure we walked off what a we in okay picture this it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road
2: I don't know if this applies to you or not, but I wanted to get your opinion. I remember reading a story about the old summer pickup games that obviously are famous at North Carolina. But back in the mid 80s, I uh, remember Dave Popson um, being talking about how Duke and Carolina, I think Dawkins and Jordan started it like maybe in 80, 82, 83. Uh, but how occasionally Carolina and Duke would actually play summer pickup games, whether it be at Carmichael or at, uh, over at. Uh, their house Cameron um, man, Cameron Cameron yeah <laughs> focused on Carmichael um <laughs> did, did that continue at all during your time in Chapel Hill and and if even if not was there much interaction between the two programs the players during the offseason
0: I'm going to tell you this. And up, up until a few years ago, I'd only been to Durham four times. <laughs> and that was to that was play those Dookies that Cameron didn't know. I, I I didn't think I'd be welcome over there to show my face uh, in that city, even though it was only seven, eight miles away. You know, I I, I didn't like them. Uh, and they didn't like me, those little dookies. Boy, they used to get on me something fierce, even 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 after the loss of my parents, which I always thought was classy for somebody with 1400 on the SAT. Uh, classless rather for you know getting some, being so smart as they were, but yeah, they try to get in your head, right? So they wanted to get in your kitchen, throw you off the game. Uh, so I I'd go over there a whole lot, you know. I I know there was a couple of NC State guys, and uh, and that they would come to our place because you know, Chapel Hill's, let's, let's just face it. Uh, we had the prettier girls and the better parties and the fun, and the funner spots to hang out. So they might have come over to, to hang out in Chapel Hill on Franklin Street, but we weren't going to hang out on their spots over there in Durham.
2: So, so fast forwarding from your Chapel Hill days, you you have a fantastic career. You graduate, looking at the pros, and then you go undrafted. Uh, oh. Kind of walk us through the. The emotions there, and you, you're thinking like, "Man, I may not find a spot at the NBA." And then, of course, uh, you quickly have world championship success. Well,
0: you know, that was, a, that was a,
2: another traumatic night, I guess, in Chapel Hill.
0: Uh, I watched the um, the draft from my apartment just off campus over in Carborough with uh, again JD, my roommate, uh, my brother, and uh, Gallows. Dating at the time, finds out a Badger and. When the first round went by, I was shocked and embarrassed because uh, everything kind of pointed to me being a late lottery pick to first rounder. And so I excused myself, went to back to the bedroom, closed and locked the door, and watched the second round go by. And as we got halfway through the second round, I got my list out, a pen and paper, and started writing down everybody's name and uh, what team drafted them. Uh, and I I just said that I was determined I'm going to play longer and all these cats that get drafted before me not knowing I wouldn't get drafted at all. Um, and then shortly after the draft, I had a number of teams that called, but it was getting invited to go play in a pickup game in Greensboro that Fred Whitfield, who is the right hand for Michael Jordan, would put on for some underprivileged kids kind of as a way to have the kids and, and MJ and come back with somebody else. His pro players from he knew around the league and of course some guys in Charlotte, and only had a a couple years uh, in existence. They came up uh, and and played, and I said, if I'm gonna play at the next level against these guys, had the next level another plug. uh, I got it. I got to start competing against them, right? I got to see what I got. How do I measure up? And I didn't say I dominated the game, but I was fortunate because Jay played, Jr played, and. He gave me a real good physical game, which allowed me to show what my true skills were, right? Not a college game, but but a real, a real good physical NBA game, banging down low, battling for position on the boards, trying to score over tough defense. And I was on Michael Jordan's team. So I got an, an O board late in the game. We were down, and instead of going back up with it, I found number 23 in the right corner, and he canned the game-winning shot. So as he's leaving the arena – he calls Jerry Krause, who was the general manager for the Chicago Bulls, and says, I think you need to give Williams a try, a, a look-see. And, and so they called me, and uh, they invited me to go to their summer camp. And after summer camp, I got to go to veterans camp. And there was about seven of us trying out for the last remaining open roster spot, which they had 11 guys under contract. That was back in the days; They only carried 12, 12 guys. And some of them, a few teams, maybe two or three, would carry a, a 13th man but um you know most of the teams uh only carry 12 and you know I would get on that van and uh come back to that from practice and I would just throw up everything that I I had learned I'd written it down and all that Phil Jackson had this triangle offense was oh my god it was like this chessboard of moving pieces in and out and read and react to your teammates into the defense you had to be in multiple positions in the action, away from the action, uh, and I learned it quickly because Coach Smith taught us the fundamentals of basketball. He taught us Basketball 101. Our film sessions were like like classroom style, and I picked up on it a little quicker than so many other cats. So, you know, the vantage from maybe the, the neck down might have been about even, but from the neck up, I picked up. I knew who I was. I wasn't in the wrong spot. I wasn't, you know, my timing was right. And that in itself gave me an edge. I think when it came down for them making their final decision, I got on that van one day and everybody else was gone. There was my locker, uh, my, you know, with my Jersey in it. And uh, there was no press conference. There was no meeting with Phil Jackson saying, congratulations, you bet the team. I just strapped on my shoes and kept, and kept playing. I said, I guess they'll tell me to, when to go home when they're done with me. So <laughs> I just kept going and, and rode that all the way to a, to a championship.
1: So you you're undrafted, you end up with the Bulls, and of course Jordan had already gone through the 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 process of they're getting a team, and, and you come in to a well old well old machine that is the Chicago Bulls. Um, what was that like fitting in? It's, it's not like say '86 when Jordan got there; they were terrible and they built up. When you got there, they were good. It, it, How was it?
0: They were good, but they hadn't gotten past the Pistons. They gotten beaten in the uh, in the playoffs, and I think in in 1990 was the uh, Eastern Conference Finals. And I remember the first day we have a meeting before the first day of practice, and uh, you know, general manager there, uh, Jerry is there, and Phil Jackson. I give a speech, and I I kept hearing Detroit Pistons having a home court advantage. We got to have the home court advantage. We got the best record in the East, and. When we went to training camp, it was you know right there. We practiced at a health club, which was kind of bizarre, you know, back in the day. Think our NBA team, we have this nice training facility all themselves, but it was a health club. <laughs> they would pull the curtains down during practice, so people on the stairmaster and, and the ellipticals and and treadmills could, couldn't see us practicing, all yelling and banging, and everything that was going on. But it was a war. Uh, we practiced in the morning and again in the evening uh there was no time frame there was you know you can't have to you know but but one physical practice it was an all-out war jordan michael jordan i'm gonna tell you i I get goosebumps even to this day I've, i've told this story uh 50 times and i get goosebumps every time i think about how hard this dude uh went in training camp i'm talking that i hadn't seen anything like that during my 15 year career after after that he was labeled as a scorer, but never could win the big one, right? He has 37 points a game and uh, you know, won, I don't know, nine consecutive scoring titles or whatever, but he was always labeled as dude that can't, can't uh, win a championship. And when I say I pissed him off, <laughs> it, it practices war, an all-out war, war compete, competing uh, competitions for shooting drills, uh, you know, running drills, dude was out in front of everything. He refused to lose. i never seen somebody so competitive work so hard. Um, And I was the same way. I'm like, hey, I'm an undrafted rookie. I want to try to to work harder than everybody out here. And I think I did, you know. But not, but Michael Jordan. That guy was on an, on the next on a next level. And we come out the gate our first game, and uh, we get smashed. We we lose our first. We lost our first three games to start the season. So it went from already crazy tough to even a higher level after that. Because uh he was determined to get this thing going the right direction. And once we found our stride, though, by the time we we met those Pistons in the playoffs, they couldn't touch us. Uh I think we beat them by 20 a couple games, and I'm beating them four straight uh to go on and face the Lakers and the, the, my hometown team, which is awesome, uh, to win the championship. But that wa- that was a war. Michael, he took no prisoners when he's on the floor. Uh and some guys were afraid of MJ. That's how intense he was. His own teammates, I'm saying, were afraid of him because he got so hard and you missed a, you missed an assignment, you missed a rotation. He let you know about it. Uh in a not so nice turn sometimes because he was hell bent on getting that trophy.
1: Let me ask you this. Two two part question. One, how accurate is the last dance as far as how it was, and how much abuse on the court did Jordan take physically um that just does not exist with the guys today?
0: Well, you know, the last dance, which which I loved because it wasn't just that final championship, that sixth ring. They went all the way back to what I was explaining to you about before he had a championship. But I don't even know if they gave that first year justice of getting past the Pistons. I I think they kind of glossed over some of that. Uh, You know, I talked about Scotty Pippen and the migraines, whatnot, but that was a time in my life where I'm telling you right now, had I not been in a Coach Smith system and playing for uh, Coach Smith, that would have been probably more than I could have handled uh, as far as the amount of work we had to put in. Now, I remember Jerry Krause, uh, my first time I get to Chicago, and he picked me up in the airport. we go to go to lunch, and he was telling me, and this is all in the book, but he, he tells me, yeah, we work hard here, and I said, <laughs> Play for Coach Smith, man. You <laughs> gotta tell me about nobody outworks me. Tell me about working hard. Uh, but that was a different level with with MJ and, and Phil Jackson. I gotta give Phil Jackson a lot of credit too. You um, know, as good as Coach as Coach Smith was at the college level and being a father figure, Phil Jackson was a great pro coach. I didn't realize it at the time, but he put a lot of us, uh, his players rather, in positions to succeed with their maximizing their strengths while minimizing our weaknesses, uh, Stacey King, Will Purdue, Horace Grant, and I, we all had different styles of games. Uh, and he always kind of put us in positions where we could succeed. And I didn't appreciate that until I started playing for other coaches like John Lucas and Johnny Davis. And they were like, you go stand over there. When the shot goes up, you run in there and get me a rebound. Like, yeah, no, that ain't my game. I got to be down. They call me Tank. <laughs> I got to be down here moving people around, knocking the snot out of people's noses. You know, that that's not my game to go ISO out here 35 feet from the basket. you want me to go run and get you a rebound? Well, you know, the fans are booing me now. You give me an eight year contract to do this. This ain't going to help me look good. Uh, so you start realizing, yeah, Phil Jackson's pretty good at making me look good. How do I get back to Chicago? Especially after Jordan came back to 18 months later, sucker. I mean, he told me he was coming back. I would have never left Chicago. Um, but yeah, that, that times, uh the last dance, I think it was fairly accurate. I, I think that they talk about, you know, I think he was a little lighter. I don't think. When I played with him, Dennis Rodman running off to Las Vegas with Carmen Electra, oh, hell no. He wouldn't have gone for that because he didn't have a championship ring. When you already got three and you're not a guy that can help you get a fourth, maybe you were a little bit more laxed and, and said, well, let's see how this plays out. That Not the guy that I played with. He, he wouldn't have been down with any of that. So, yeah, he was a little more t- uh,
2: tame than, uh, the, than the cat that I played with. Scott, so you you had a, a long NBA uh, career what 17 years with, with a bunch 15,
0: of 15 years. Yeah,
2: so just a a lot of different teams. Um, and you kind of touched on it there, but you when you have the the building blocks that first Dean Smith and then Phil Jackson kind of put on the the table for you, uh, I mean that, that seems like an incredible amount of uh, fundamentals and, and quite the foundation. Yeah. How much did, did those experiences really pave the way for you to have such a long and prosperous NBA career?
0: Well, they, they paved the way tremendously, uh, and and I'm going to also uh, credit a couple of my teammates that I had early on. Being in a veteran um, locker room and on a team that you know was on the up and coming, on the rise. Uh, I had the great, the good fortune of being with guys like MJ, John Paxson, Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, that taught me, it's not always what you do when you're on the floor. It's about being, all, ABP, all, always be pro, right? So um, that, that, was, that was the thing that I think elevated me to be able to continue my career as my skills uh, started to diminish, because it's hard to play the same way you play in year four and five, which you're kind of at your peak, four, five, six, seven, um, the same way you play at, at years 13, 14, and 15. The, the mind's sharp and wants to get to the places on the floor, but the body goes, ah, nah, nah. <laughs> we can't do that no more. Uh, so you have to use your smarts on the floor. But also, it gives you an ability to be able to help younger players behind you. Wow. Um, one of the guys that I had uh, shortly after leaving Philadelphia, going to Milwaukee, uh, was a kid named Michael Rett. He Was out of Ohio State, played two years there. Came into the league as a 20-year-old, and wasn't getting any playing time. Played behind <laughs> played behind Ray Allen, right? So you don't get a whole lot of minutes there. And you know, we were in the locker room. It was just him and I. He goes, Scott, what do I got to do to get more floor? And I just I bluntly said. Mike, your body's working against you. You're pudgy. You're fat. You're out of shape. You've got to change guys like Reggie Miller all, all, all around screens for, you know, uh, 25, 30 minutes. And you got to get in better conditioning. You know, he he wasn't happy with me telling him that. Um, but I always looked at my teammates as brothers. And I didn't do that in front of anybody, not to embarrass him, but wanted to help the kids succeed. And sure, sure enough, he got his body right. Next year he kept playing. And the year out of that he made the All-Star team, and he went on to have a a great successful career. I think he played longer than I did, if I'm if I'm correct. Um, Amari Stoudemire, same thing here in Phoenix. You know, this kid comes in four high schools and 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 uh, four years of uh, four different school high schools in four years. I uh, says, say he's a problem kid. Uh, I said, well, you put his locker next to mine, and I'm going to watch out for him, and we never had a problem with Amari kid came in every day, Tom Gugliotta and I, who you remember he over at State, mm-hmm. we became good friends, uh, and we took Amari in and said, this is what it takes to be professional. You show up on time, you put in your work, you stay late after practice, you work on your individual skills, you know, separate yourself from the team, and Amari went on to be an NBA All-Star and wanted, and had a thirst to be the best he could be, and it helped every ball club he was on. That, that Those Dan Tony teams of Steve Nash and, and Marion and Joe Johnson and Stoudemire, that six seconds or less, or offense that they had, it was unstoppable for a couple of years when, when Nash was winning the MVP and leading the league in assists and Stoudemire and uh, Marion were finished at the rim. I like to think that I had a hand on helping that, that young plant those young seeds of success for Joe Johnson and Marion and Stoudemire. Um, so You get rewarded in a different way. Yeah, I would have liked to have won another championship after leaving MJ in Chicago. uh, But I enjoyed my new role that I found. uh, And a lot of that had to do with being taught what it was to be a teammate. I had a player, and I'm going to say this briefly in Philadelphia. I'm not going to name no names, uh, but his initials are AI, that didn't understand that. He didn't understand what it was to be a team guy, to try to build something, and be connected with your teammates, sitting out of practice, uh, you know, talking trash when you were doing sitting out of practice with the guys out there trying to get better. It was to freak me out. Like, I've gone with, from playing with pros in, in Chicago to this. I was burnt out of basketball. The me in Milwaukee gave me a breath of fresh air, and I was so happy to be around uh, guys like Ray Allen and Glenn Robinson and Sam Cassell that wanted a team to do well. We were game away from making it to the NBA Finals. I was this, this close to getting back to that Finals again, and that doggone David Stern suspended me from Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals, I think we would have taken them down.
2: <laughs> I'm serious. as no, a heart attack for that. Yeah, I, yeah no, I know. <laughs> um, Scott, you, you mentioned the the preseason training camp at a, at a fitness facility, fitness center uh, with the Bulls. That kind of got me thinking about um, kind of where things are now with NIL. Do you remember, and if, if you remember, can you share – what your first uh, salary was with the Bulls back in 1990?
0: <laughs> well, if they could have paid me less, they probably would have tried to, but thank God there was, was a minimum <laughs> by the Players Association. But, yeah, I mean, I had $150,000. i am not going to – I'm not ashamed to say that. I thought, hey, out, out of college, I don't know how many of my classmates that didn't play in the NBA were making 150 back then. So I was happy to have it. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it was a different league back then, right? And Jordan wasn't even making yeah. $2 million at the time. So – uh, yeah, I remember when John contact got that first, uh, $2 million contract, everybody's eyes oh, got wide as saucers. Like, Oh my gosh, you know, like this is crazy. Now these guys are making 50 and 60. The bench guys are making 15 and 20. So, uh, it's a totally different, uh, pay scale now, but yeah, we practiced at a health club called the multiplex. I told you they had a salon in there the ladies are coming to get their hair done <laughs> and their nails did, you know, like it was crazy. It was a crazy time. My second year, I had my shoulder fixed uh, that summer out in Los Angeles uh, you know, at the Curlin Joe Clinic. I remember Magic Johnson was rehabbing in there and Byron Scott. It was weird because we just bested them in the finals. And um, come back and the, the team won't let me uh, practice with the squad saying I was unfit. And I couldn't even be around my teammates. So between the morning session that they would have and the afternoon session, the court would be open to the old, uh, you know, the doctors and the lawyers and, uh, you know, the guys, the guys trying to get a little run during the lunch break. So I would sneak back in there at lunch uh, and put on just regular old, you know, a T-shirt and shorts and play the point <laughs> and go up and down so I could get a sweat, get the ball in my hand, used to get some shots, your know, timing, vision, all those kind of things. And I did that for about seven, 10 days while they were taking a look at this kid out of uh, Kansas, Mark Randall. Uh, and then when they saw that he wasn't going to be able to be me, they finally let me rejoin the team after that. I think maybe they had heard I was sneaking into practice, too. But, uh, you know, I, I, that's how I, that's, a, that's what the league was like back then. It was totally different. So uh, I don't remember any of those doctors or those lawyers' names, but thank you uh, for, for keeping, <laughs> keeping me in shape and let me get a little well, run.
2: <laughs> well, as you mentioned, money has just exploded across all professional sports, and we're finally starting to see some of the money kind of go to the players at the college level with, with name, image, and likeness. Um, I'm curious your overall thoughts on NIL, and also you know, with, with college players, granted there's only a few, but with some college players making, making upwards of a million dollars a year with NIL. Um, do you see that as a potential problem in terms of motivation and all those kind of things that's required to kind of fight your way to the top at the college level? Hundred um, percent.
0: I've been saying for years when I was in the was in the game getting paid, and <clears throat> after the game getting paid in pros, there needed to be something in place for these college kids to. Uh, be compensated for what they were doing if if university coaches uh and the universities were making those types of dollars that they were clocking you know billion dollar business just in basketball alone football's with the championship that they have in place now probably even bigger than that so um something needs to be done but the way they're doing it right now is not good it is leading to uh you know one of the biggest uh, flaws i guess we have as humans jealousy Right. And you can't have a cat on your team making three million dollars as a starting quarterback. And you down there in the dirt, you know, getting your uh, bones busted uh, and you can barely get uh, take a a, a gal out uh, on a weekend uh, for for a meal. That's not going to work. So what they got to do is have a system in place where I'm not saying everybody gets the same amount because that's unrealistic. But I gotta say, there's gotta be something where it's a multiple of what the lowest paid guy is going to get, uh, and to have that be standard uh, across. Whether it be, you know, it's not saying all all sports, but in, figure it out by a sport by sport basis on what that does for revenue sports. Because right now, this is this is not working. Uh, watching, you know, Carolina lose five guys in the transport portal because they were unhappy with their situation. I'm not going to get into it du- directly, whatever that might have been. Uh, and it's not – Carolina's not the only one. Uh, you know, it, it, GCU, where I do television work for here, a kid by the name of uh, Chance McMillan, who has been in the program – well, he's you know a sophomore, but he's been here a couple another year because of the pandemic. Played play really well and has an opportunity to go to a bigger school and go get paid now. Like it's, it's, it's just, I don't, I don't know, had, you know, dollars to dollars been the same GC GCU can't pay what, what a larger programs is going to be, but that does, it just, if it was something in a system in place where you say, well, hey, I can take care of my family. I can set myself up for uh, the future. And it's all kind of apples to apples and equal. I don't think you see guys bouncing around very, very much. Cause I know chance was happy with here, but you know, hard to it, uh, fault a guy for going and getting, you know, go get me back someplace else.
1: Yeah, they got to figure it out. I'm not sure if they, they will or when they will or whatever, but it, it is a little bit I hope it's it, it sometime soon. It, it needs to be for the sake of the game. I, I see you've got an NIL check behind you there on the wall. I say that in jest, <laughs> but uh, uh, so Dean Smith, once again, uh, very ahead of the game. Just tell us about what's behind you there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, okay.
1: I got to remember this is, uh, yeah. There it is. So yeah,
0: you, know, you guys, I'm sure you've heard the story. Uh, former players talking about their <laughs> NIL, it's a funny way to put it, but after coach Smith passed, you know, uh, we were all probably a little sad and this is his way of uh, sending us all a message and how much he, uh, respected us and what we meant to him to send us this nice letter, which I have framed with the check, and I had a couple of people give me some uh, basketball cards. The coach, well, I didn't even know he had basketball cards, you know. So I I put them in a frame, cast the check, I put it in a frame, and uh, and I and I take it from you know place to place where I've been over the last eight years, and uh, it just it just re- it reminds me of. You know, all that he did for me in my life and not letting me give up on my dreams and my goals um, through the loss of my parents. They're not being drafted uh, to the, my shoulder injuries. Uh, he kept kept pushing uh, and make, he kept helping me believe that uh, I could accomplish what I wanted to. And I've had a, a wonderful life uh, because of. Um, all of the people that he had around in place, the man that he was, uh, and my teammates and my time on, on the Hill.
1: Well, you could not have closed this show out better with those final words there, Scott. It, it's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Man, uh, I know man Greg... before you
1: guys let me go, because I wanted to do this at the start
0: of the show, Tommy, I'm so sorry. No, no. I'll still a I... minute if I can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I wanted to just say over the weekend I'd gotten – word of uh, Eric Montrose from his family releasing the statement about his uh, health. And I wanted to uh, express, um, uh, I guess, that I'm praying for his family. And I know all of of Tar Heel Nation, the Carolina family, of course, will be praying for E, um, that he uh, beats this uh, illness. And uh, we'll be back to see him working those sidelines and doing those games. He was a teammate of mine in philadelphia a great dude great family man uh and uh i know if anybody out there can uh, give this a good fight he's going to give it his all and he's going to he's going to have the entire carolina nation and carolina family uh uh, in his corner
1: indeed man i appreciate you bringing it up it is a a tough situation but you're right that carolina family you know, from you to Jeff to across the the gamut of guys that have played and everybody that's followed North Carolina, certainly pulling for Eric Montrose and, and sending those thoughts and prayers to his family as he fights that nasty. I don't want to say what I really think about cancer because they'll kick us off the airways, but um, just a bad situation. Scott, uh, thank you so much for taking the opportunity through the fire, Scott Williams's book about his life, his career at North Carolina. Personal tragedy and dealing with all that and becoming the successful person that he is today. I'm Tommy Ashley. That's Greg Barnes. This has been Inside Carolina's Next Level, Scott Williams Through the Fire. We'll post the links on how to get a hold of his book. And like he said, go see him in Chapel Hill on April 15th, signing the book there on Franklin Street. Certainly worth the read, certainly worth the experience. Scott, thank you, my brother.
0: Tommy and Greg can't thank you guys enough. This was Next Level.